are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Africa Rights Talk. With me today is one of the most phenomenal women I've ever met from the Center for Human Rights. I'm going to ask her to just introduce herself and the nature of the work that she does at the Center. Thank you so much for having me um, in your conversation. I really appreciate it. My name is Bonolo Makale, and I work for the Center for Human Rights in the Democracy and Civic Engagement Unit. Essentially, the, the unit spearheads the center's efforts to promote democracy in Africa. Our guiding instrument is the African Democracy Charter. So what we do is we look at innovative ways to apply to apply the charter, innovative ways to disseminate it and help states implement its objectives. But we aren't only interested in democracy at a domestic level. We also work with the Pan-African Parliament, which is an organ of the African Union. Our efforts are to close the democratic gap by creating a space for citizens and civil society to interact and influence the work of the Pan-African Parliament. So when when the Pan-African Parliament was established, I think that was a moment in history that definitely signaled a historical milestone for Africa's integration and economic development. So we see this African continent that was set up as a means to ensure that there's full participation of Africans in the development and economic integration of Africa, and also to provide a platform for African people to participate in decision-making processes on matters affecting the continent. And so the Center for Human Rights, through a partnership with the Pan-African Parliament and civil society organizations on the continent, have established a civil society forum with the aim to foster collaboration between and among civil society organizations on Pan-African Parliament-related issues and also with a view to advancing and promoting the mandate of the Pan-African Parliament. So we, we want to promote active and constructive citizen and civil society engagement with the Pan-African Parliament. We want to create formal mechanisms of engagement with the Pan-African Parliament by essentially identifying gaps and challenges relating to civil society and devising strategies for addressing them, if you may. We also do research on democratic elections in Africa. I mean, for us, elections are not just a mechanical process. Rather, they are a complicated, constitutional issue that go to the heart of politics. So beyond investigating more standard issues of voter turnout, for an example, or election tempering, we ask and answer deeper questions to understand what problems elections respond to and how elections can be enhanced to yield better results for the African electorate. That will bring me right into what we're going to be discussing today. We're going to be talking about the political landscape in Africa, but more specifically, we're going to be looking at the impact of COVID-19 as far as elections are concerned, right? So how does COVID-19 affect the political landscape in Africa and what effect does this have on the observation of human rights? 
So, I mean, I think we can all agree, Tatenda, that um, COVID-19 has presented us with a threat, a big threat. The pandemic will and, and actually has overburdened our health systems. It has endangered our lives and affected most African economies. Um, we see COVID-19 in particular having seriously affected the political landscape in several ways. The, the state of affairs has devastating consequences on human rights, especially because some of the measures undertaken by African countries to fight the pandemic have, you know, contravened on the rights of its citizens. So firstly, thinking about how it has affected the political landscape, particularly elections in Africa, and there are there's a postponement of electoral calendar. Countries like Cameroon, Chad, Ethiopia, the Gambia, Kenya, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, just to mention a few, had planned to hold elections this year and had to postpone the electoral calendar for reasons related to COVID-19 pandemic. And so postponing election has a direct impact on the right to vote and the right to choose a government of your choice. And secondly, postponing of elections to some countries poses a serious constitutional crisis, given that most countries had not anticipated this kind of crisis. For an example, a country like Ethiopia, according to its constitution, the existing government's term is supposed to come to an end in September. So what this means is that after September, automatically the existing government will become illegitimate as per the constitution. And if you think about it, Ethiopia's general elections were postponed indefinitely. So that that on its own is a crisis. And also thirdly, I think it's worth noting that measures such as a blanket lockdown, curfew and turning the country into a state of emergency adopted by, by a few countries in Africa, countries like Sierra Leone, countries like South Africa, Kenya and Uganda have seriously changed the way politics were conducted before COVID-19. These measures have limited physical, political rally and political mobilization and influence of opposition political parties to conduct their affairs. We see that some states have used restrictions to, to crack down on, on perceived political enemies and seems to be a license to trump up human rights and shrinking political space. For example, in a country like Guinea, we see violations of human rights that targeted political oppositions under the disguise of enforcing COVID-19 measures. We've also seen journalists in countries like Somalia, Rwanda, and Nigeria have also been targeted. And so, of course, what this means is that holding political rallies is, is almost impossible. Therefore, it comes with a challenge to mobilize voter support. But also, Tatenda, I think it's important also to reflect on reports of police brutality in countries like South Africa. You may recall a story of Colin Koza and his brutal murder, countries like Kenya, Nigeria, and Uganda. And there is a serious lack of accountability for, for these atrocities. So in a sense, COVID-19 has opened our eyes to problems that we have been complacent about. We 
see in South Africa again at the beginning of the lockdown. In rapid time, the state made efforts to respond to some of the many deep-seated socioeconomic challenges that were once considered too costly and too complex for the state to resolve. It has also given us an opportunity to think about economic systems and, and failures of capitalism to contain a crisis. Again, if we use South Africa as an example, it revived the country's outrage over corruption. You know, you hear and see on social media people saying stealing is one thing, but stealing during a pandemic is another thing. So COVID-19 allows citizens to look at countries and their leaders with a fresh eye. And, and if used effectively, these new perspectives can, can greatly enhance public policy in the future. I like what you mentioned there, especially when you were talking about how COVID-19 has more or less presented an opportunity for governments to repress its citizens from speaking out and airing you know, their concerns. I mean, in Zimbabwe just recently, there were a few journalists and a few other opposition activists who were brutalized, terrorized, and, and the government was citing that they couldn't have gone to the streets to protest because they needed to observe certain lockdown regulations. So it's quite a fine line there when you find, especially despotic government regimes, taking advantage of basically taking advantage of the situation which COVID-19 presents and it's a cause for concern there. So how does this pandemic affect democratic institutions and electoral processes in Africa? Well, I mean... Obviously, it, 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 it doesn't affect it quite well. Generally, I think there are two kinds of scenarios have played out on, on the continent. So one would be either the election goes ahead with minimal respect for social distancing and other efforts to reduce infections. So we've got countries like Burundi and Malawi recently as well held elections. So we've got either where elections go ahead. Alternatively, the pandemic is exploited to justify a delay in democratic processes. In this case, which seems to be a growing trend where governments use the pandemic to entrench themselves. COVID-19 pandemic has also affected democratic institutions such as election commissions of different countries. These commissions have to ensure the health and safety of of voters. And at the same time, they have to meet the standard of free, fair and transparent elections. So it's a complex balancing act. How would you recommend governments to conduct elections during a pandemic such as this one? Look, election processes are are very complex. They're very complex logistically. They're very complex politically. And it gets more sophisticated in this time of the pandemic when the mandated authorities are to take into consideration the health and safety of the voters. As I've alluded earlier, a few countries in Africa had to postpone their electoral calendar. But also there are some countries, as I mentioned again, there are countries such as Burundi and Tanzania and others which decided to to go on with elections regardless of the dangers posed by COVID-19. So some of the recommendations I'll bring across for countries which decided to go on with elections would be firstly to consider the safety and security of their citizens. So the safety and security of their citizens must be of paramount importance. There is a Roman legal principle, which I would not attempt to to say, but what it means is that the safety of the people needs to be the supreme law. 
So therefore, any government's decision to go on with elections, safety and, and, and health of its people must be a priority and of, of paramount importance. And secondly, once the government is satisfied that the health of its citizens is guaranteed, and then voting process and election readiness to observe strict rules of social distancing as a measure of preventing contracting the virus. And I imagine that this might be hard, especially in Africa and in, in a political campaign where political parties need to campaign and hold rallies to propagate their political ideologies and manifestos. I, I acknowledge this is, is hard and it might be difficult to observe in Africa because political rallies are the best way of, of conducting campaigns. So I think, though, it's necessary to ensure social distancing still. But also there are creative ways as well that uh, political parties could explore, like using social media as a way of campaigning and, and putting forward their political ideologies and manifestos to mobilize voter support. And thirdly, I think the standard of fairness and freedom are respected during election period. So this means prior the elections, during and post-elections, we have witnessed the cracking down of opposition escalating during this COVID-19 times under the name of enforcing curfew and lockdown measures. Again, a good example is would be Guinea, as I've mentioned earlier, that they've used you know measures that they've put in place to try and manage the spread of COVID-19 to violate human rights of opposition parties and of its citizens. The COVID-19 pandemic presents opportunities for moving a lot of services online, including voting. What opportunities or risks does this present in promoting civic engagement? Well, one, depending on the methodologies adopted by governments, I mean, online voting could be feasible. If implemented and implemented well, online voting will almost certainly double voter turnout in many states since it eliminates the laborious trip to the polls. It could also make voters less apathetic, assuming that the system is really simple and the threshold of participation is no higher than sending a tweet. But also online voting could allow for certain vulnerable populations, such as people with health issues or older people, to vote in the comfort of their own. I think in Africa in particular, one country that we could view, potentially view as a success story would be Namibia. In 2019, Namibia conducted e-voting and it was arguably successful. But of course, there are challenges that, that comes with this. Challenges such as digital literacy, global divide, lack of proper ICT infrastructure, but also think about countries like Uganda, for example, where they have social media taxes, meaning that internet voting will be inaccessible because of higher costs of data to a particular group of people, in this case, the poor who might not be able to afford data, which then means they might not be able to vote, right, because of the social media taxes. But more importantly, we we must reflect on whether all our citizens in both rural and urban areas, given their unequal access to technology and varying connectivity issues across the continent, will be afforded an opportunity to exercise their rights without the hindrance of issues caused by technology. I mean, most African countries
countries do not have the necessary technology to facilitate online voting. There's also issues of access to electricity. There's a World Bank report, I think it's a 2019 report, statistics shows that there's about 40% of electricity access gap in sub-Saharan Africa. This means that a majority of people do not have access to electricity and therefore does not guarantee their right to vote, which of course might have serious impact on voter turnout. And besides it having serious impact on voter turnout, it's quite exclusionary because then it means a majority of, of citizens can't vote because of access to electricity. Again, statistics show that the literacy rate in sub-Saharan Africa was about 65%, if I'm correct, in 2017. What this means is that one third of the people aged 15 and above were unable to read or write. We saw a 2019 data released by the African Union that states that the literacy rate in African countries are rated at roughly 70%, lagging behind world's average of about 90%. Again, what this means is that um, if we are to consider online voting as an alternative, it might be exclusionary. So this also then will have an impact on on online voting. I mean, in my mind, I think online voting presupposes the high level of literacy in Africa, which is actually not 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 a case um, if we are to consider these statistics that I've just mentioned. There are also cybersecurity issues here at play. Every state has an interest in their neighbor's politics, and it's highly likely that more aggressive states could interfere in the elections of their global rivals. Uh, the risk of interference isn't only external. We can see it even internally. Political parties within the process have a direct interest in rigging it. If these parties are already rigging physical elections, why do we think virtual elections will be immune from these processes? But I think for me, what's important to attend is that a question of democracy. Are we, are we going to surrender democracy to machines? Machines with a high risk of being manipulated. I think the idea that online voting will ensure free, fair, transparent and peaceful elections it's, 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 it's far-fetched, um, considering the fact that these machines have a high risk of being manipulated. But it is also far-fetched to say that we can implement online voting in a way that will ensure um, credible election, given these many challenges that we are facing in Africa that I've mentioned. You know, we see countries in the West already struggling and still trying to figure it out. So you can imagine what this will mean for Africa with our many socioeconomic and sociopolitical challenges that we are facing. Well, the reason I asked that question is that the campaign for the Center for Human Rights this year is hashtag tech for rights, rethinking a human rights-based approach to new technologies in Africa. And in your response, you did mention that it's a bit far-fetched to start thinking of e-voting as something that can be practically applicable in the African context. But I'd like to believe that already the human rights movement on its own has so many positive that it has drawn from different forms of technology. For example, we've had the Black Lives Matter campaign, which literally took the world by storm. And this is a campaign that 
took place online on different platforms on social media. We have seen so many injustices that have taken place, even in the South African context where we've seen police brutality taking place. We have evidence of that, different videos, and they've been shared on different platforms thanks to technology. So why would we need to confine certain aspects of what technology can do for human rights and not start rethinking what or how democracy can also be a part of this as well. I think it's time that even as African countries, we start to take advantage of these different kinds of technology to try and enhance and improve human rights and democracy and civic participation. I don't know what you think. No, I, I agree with you. I, if you recall, I did say that um, depending on methodologies adopted by governments, online voting could be be visible, right? So I'm not I'm not completely saying that there's no place for, for for online voting, there's no place for human rights and technology. I think it's a very progressive tool for for, for states to employ. Um, but we still have a long way to go. Um, it will be far-fetched, like what I mentioned, that it will be far-fetched for us to think that we can implement online voting in the near future considering that there are also quite complex issues that might stand in our way to ensure that online voting is successful. And like I said, a country like Namibia has has tried e-voting and it was arguably very successful. So I'm not completely writing it off. And I think it's important for states to explore alternative and technology is a powerful tool. I agree with you. The movements around Black Lives Matter on the end of end of gender-based violence. I mean, we've seen technology playing a huge role in exposing some of the ills that we see in our democracies. If you think of what's happening in Zimbabwe as well, uh, social media has exposed the oppressive regime that that Zimbabwe is, right? So there is a place for technology and it is to try and, and explore alternative ways by using online voting. What I am saying is that we do have all these other pressing matters and challenges that are to be considered and, and perhaps paid attention to and perhaps resolved to ensure that online voting is not exclusionary, to ensure that people in rural communities who do not have access to to electricity or who do not have access to good infrastructure, technological infrastructure, are not left out. Because if, if those are not considered it will then mean that only the elites will be able to exercise their right to political participation and a majority of the poor will be left behind from participating, from accessing their right to political participation. Would you like to give some concluding remarks? Look, um, voting is a very politically important act for many of us, especially given the history of a lot of people being denied political participation and their ability to vote, right? If you think about in the South African context, the fact that before 1994, a whole lot of people were unable to vote. In relation to COVID-19, COVID-19 has put us in a very difficult position we are facing an unprecedented crisis. And, and as you've alluded earlier, the multifaceted challenges brought by COVID-19 are enormous. And so I think the challenge is that while African states are forced to take decisive actions to cap the spread of COVID-19, these actions should not undermine the rule of law. And these actions should not threaten the promotion of 
democracy and human rights. And therefore, what, what this means is that governments are now in a position that needs a, a delicate balance of preserving human rights and, and maintaining democratic principles while equally prioritizing and ensuring the health and safety of its citizens. COVID-19 is not going anywhere. It looks like it's going to be with us for a long time. And so this is a moment for us to rethink how we govern, to rethink how how we prioritize our ways of, of doing politics and ensuring that, again, we, we don't undermine the rule of law and, and threaten the promotion of, of, of democracy. Thank you so much, Bonolo. It was lovely having you. Thank you so much for having me, Tatenda. I, I appreciate um, your invitation. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musinahama. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.